Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 281, recorded April 27th, 2022. I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Anna Story. Welcome, Anna. Um, before we jump in, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm a data engineer, or at least at the moment. <laughs> Um, I'm by training, I'm a linguist, um, so I hold in both theoretical linguistics and computational linguistics. So I'm really about how the information is encoded in our brains and how we share this information. <laughs> and that's why I work in the tech. <laughs> nice. Uh, since I got my master's in computational linguistics, I um, worked at um, Amazon, uh, at the AI org uh, for a while. I first worked as a language engineer, actually, so it was more on the side of uh, linguistic side of things and so dealing with extracting the semantic and the, the meaning really out of the data for Alexa. Uh, then gradually I switched over to just data processing and been in the role of data engineer for about three, four years now. Uh, and I'm currently with uh, Decafon, which is the worldwide sports retailer. So working lots of lots of data there. Okay. Wow. Interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really neat how we can speak to our devices these days, and they kind of actually work, do do amazing things, right? Like, I I know yeah. when Alexa first came out, and Siri especially, it was like, ah, I don't really want to, that thing is so not getting. And now I talk to my devices all the time. It's amazing. Um, yeah, um, there are some things that are really sophisticated that they can do now. Sometimes I can't even believe like where we're actually getting there. <laughs> so it's pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I admit that, you know, some of things that they're like, really, you can't do it. <laughs> yeah. But I realized that having worked on that, actually, I realized that sometimes it's just, um, kind of thing that, you know, like from a professional standpoint, it, it might seem like kind of trivial to me, but I realized that, you know, there's so much work put into these things and then the AI um, of the actual device uh, that sometimes just like you, you, you don't get, you know, to all these little like corners, right? Um, so one of the things that I got to work at, at some point was actually helping Alexa kind of know when she needs to stop. <laughs> When she needs to stop talking about things and telling you about things like whatever she found on Wikipedia or whatnot. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's funny. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, well, for our first item, Michael, do you want to kick it off? I will definitely kick it off. Let's take it to the next level with this one. So this is an article by Iluda uh, called Take Your GitHub Repository to the Next Level. And there's kind of 13 levels, but, you know, I guess it's a spectrum. You decide which level you want to take it to. So here are basically 13 ideas on how your GitHub repository can be better. So there was a topic I was going to cover after I explored it more. I decided, ah, eh, not not so much. But as part of it, it was there was there was a conversation about some WebAssembly stuff in Python, and I checked it out. It's really cool. They're like, we're going to use this library. This is the fundamental thing that makes it work. And I go to the GitHub repo for that, and it says, here's how you build it, <laughs> and that's it. I'm like, wait, okay, great, but why do I want it? <laughs> What can I do with it? How do I use it? I don't care about how do I build it. Like that's the last, I'll just download the WASM file. But what do I do with it once I get it, right? Yeah. It was just none of that. And so that's kind of, you know, this article helps you think through those ideas. Oh, nice. So mm. number one, and you know it's Python friendly because it starts with zero, step zero, rather than one, make your project more discoverable. Now, every one of these comes with a recommendation, a bit of a description, and then examples, which is cool. Nice. 
So for example, this one says what you can do is to help people find your project. If the name of your project does not carefully describe what it is, you can put tags basically. Hmm. Um, so like refactoring or science or things like that might be something you put on there that's not immediately obvious from it, right? So you can tag subject areas and whatnot, and they have some examples. So for example, there's this thing called Well App, which is like a, a mindfulness app for the Mac. Of course, it's for the Mac, isn't it? So uh, it has tags such as Mac OS, productivity, happiness, mental health, but also Flutter and Web App if people wanted to check out a, a Flutter Web App, right? Okay, so that's, you know, there's other examples as well. That's uh, step zero. Step one is choose a name that sticks. <sighs> something that's available on PyPI, something that people can Google, something that people want to say. It doesn't sound silly or, or unprofessional if they were to use it. <laughs> you wouldn't call your web app fancy pants server, right? You wouldn't say, well, our fancy pants server is really scaling today. Like, you wouldn't want to speak that way necessarily, so don't name it that way, right? Yeah. So, and so choose a name that sticks. And that we can say on air. So Yes, exactly. And is um, you know somewhat predictable in the pronunciation maybe because mm. that's also a challenge but so there's some examples of yeah. like yeah yeah Anna what do you think yeah absolutely um just thinking about the name something that I ran into today uh particularly with with Python some of the um, services or applications um and libraries as well that help them um and in py and sometimes you don't know if it's high or p in that case it's mm -hmm. like all you know confusing and then you're talking to somebody else who's talking about the same thing. They're like constantly confused. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I I agree. It matters a lot. Uh, let's see. So some of the things are conduct conduct a thorough internet search for the name. Avoid hard to spell names. Get the dev or .io domain if you really really care about it. You know, is it some random small little package or are you trying to create the next fast API? Right. Uh, a name that conveys some meaning. I was thinking about Jupiter, for example. Like Jupiter is pretty interesting because it's kind of hard to spell, but once you know it, you just know it and it very clearly works well in a search. There's probably no domain name that's like a misspelled planet type of thing. You know, I mean, it, it was probably a really good choice, even though it kind of breaks the uh, maybe hard to spell at first. Yeah, but it's easier to search, right? So yeah, yeah. So uh, the example they give for this one is size limit is the name. What does it do? It calculates the real cost to run your JavaScript app or lib. Keep good performance. It'll show an error in a PR if the cost, basically file size, exceeds the limit. That's cool. The next one, I'm all about this, display a beautiful cover image. So if you go to a repo and it's just the text, that's not amazing. <laughs> you want some color and you don't necessarily have to have it like an amazing logo. So they come back to this well app and it's just a W with like a little connection smile or something under it. One thing I did learn about this, though, that I thought was interesting, I'm like, how do they center this image but not have it go all the way across the README? If you go to the README and you actually look at it, apparently GitHub will let you put full HTML inside of your README for the segments that need lots of formatting. I thought, it, thought they wouldn't. I know some Markdown does fall back that way, but I didn't think GitHub did. Anyway, apparently, yes, you can. Also, this one's quick badges, like is CI passing, what's the license, and so on. Um, is there a YouTube link to like a YouTube channel that shows people how to use it? Some more of those as examples. Write a convincing description in a paragraph or two. Add things like, what is this repo or project? How does it work? Who will use it? What is the goal? And so on, right? Real simple one. And again, they come back to the size limit. It's a performance tool that'll crash your CI if it gets too big. Here we go. 
get into the ones that Brian and I love. Record visuals to attract users. Yes. So you might think there's no UI aspect, but here's a full-on CLI uh, example that is create Go app CLI. And all it does, imagine this, it creates Go apps on the CLI. It's a good name that conveys what it does. But if you go to see, is like, how do I create one? It has the, the option, but then under it, it has an animated GIF doing the things that creates the app and showing you the tree structure that results, you know, the file structure that results and so on. Then a full video and a documentation to that thing and so on. So that's pretty awesome. And how about you? I mean, Brian and I are always trying to quickly jump into a project and figure out what is it about? Is it uh, polished and so on? But, you know, that's because we run this podcast. How do you how do you see this sort of pictures and animations for repos? Yeah, that, that that's super helpful. Uh, I really like the idea with the the, the animation. Um, just basically taking you through through what the kinds of things that uh, this particular app, for instance, can do. Uh, that that would be super helpful if um, more and more people are doing it. I don't think it's super popular yet. I I don't know about how about you guys, but um, I haven't seen it pull up, you know, times. Um, yeah. But it yeah, it definitely looks nice. Uh, yeah, I really like it as well. All right, let's see. Another one is create a practical usage guide, like how to use it with some examples, some templates, answer common questions like an FAQ. Can I use it on Windows or does it uh, require admin support? I don't know, something like that. Build a community. So maybe you have a, this is probably further down the line, but like, do you have a Discord community for your project? Or you can even just enable discussions on the GitHub repository. I'll end up with people opening issues on my various repositories saying, I have a question. Like, okay, a question's not an issue. <laughs> an issue is a thing yeah. that is wrong or a uh, thing to be improved, but but they don't have another way to communicate uh, traditionally. But GitHub now has, in addition to issues, they ha also have a discussion section that's more open-ended. So I think that's off by default, if I remember correctly. At least on the older ones, it is. So I go and turn that on. Hmm. Code of conduct, that's all good. Contributor guidelines, choose a license, the right license. Remember, if you don't choose a license at all, that means it's unlicensed and people can't really use it. So add a roadmap. Create GitHub releases. Uh, one thing that's uh, I didn't pull up that's pretty cool is uh, release drafter. I'm not sure if you all are familiar with this, but this is a pretty cool thing as well. Release drafter drafts your next release notes as PRs are merged into master or main, depending on how you set up your repo. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, customize your social media preview. So if somebody shares your project, you can control what is shown in that little Twitter card or oh, wow. other cards. So mm -hmm. apparently that that can be customized inside of your GitHub repository and launch a website. Off it goes. You can use GitHub pages or Netlify is really easy for easy and free for static sites and so on. So yeah. anyway, there's a bunch of things people can do to take their repo to the next level. What do you all think? I think it's great. Yeah, uh, I love this list. Uh, it looks very nice. I don't do any of these things. And I probably should. <laughs> so I might have a picture. I have a usage guide. Oh, there's also one that talks about how to install it that I somehow skipped, but most things don't need so one of the more things, than pip install. One of the things that I see a lot is, uh, I don't know if this covers it, but I see documentation that's on read the docs, which is great, but I still think a quick start or a little like, this is how you install it and this is how you mm -hmm. can do a little bit of something with it. That should be in the readme. Um, even if you have other documentation, because I don't want to have to just go to the documentation to see if this is the right project for me. So, yeah, no, this is great. Um, so we have a question uh, of uh, does 
how does one create a CLI animated GIF? And I don't know if the dot, if this uh, article covers that, but I don't think so. Okay. We'll have to, we'll have to uh, research that and get back to you. Yeah. Well, Alvaro, what I do is um, I'll use Camtasia and you can record a Camtasia video of just the window. And then there's different output op- output options like just audio or just the video or an animated GIF. Oh, so okay, that's cool. one of them. Uh, Jeremy Page points out there are a few tools to record that. Anacinema? Anim- I don't know. Like ASCII, mm-hmm. sorry, ASCII cinema, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. It's often uh, used pretty cool. Um, yeah. And Dean, you know, hello, Dean. difficult names. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm at a loss on that one. Claudia, who I just had on Talk Python, has a blog post about many of those things, and he has a better for release drafter and patches. Yeah, I covered that on Talk Python nice. just recently about hypermodern Python. Awesome. Well, that's probably way more than people want to know about their GitHub repository. But so often, GitHub repositories these days serve as your CV or your uh, resume when you go to apply for developer jobs. And if you end up at somewhere that looks like what they've described here, rather than a bunch of things with like weird commit messages and nothing like that's going to make a different impression. Or if you want people to adopt it and start using it. Yeah. And if you don't, then don't put this stuff in. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. All right, Brian, uh, let's go faster. Well, let's go faster. Speaking of CLI. So this is, this is a fun tool. Uh, We're talking about faster, 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 I don't know. Fastero, I'm going to go with that. Um, so this is a, ti- it's like time it uh, on the command line. So, um, but it's pretty neat. So th- this is by Arian uh, Wasi, and we've had, we've covered something of his before. Um, so it was the type explainer thing. Oh, right. Yeah. I don't remember its exact name, but type explainer where you put a typed thing in there and it would humanize what those meant. So I this is a simple little tool, but I'm loving it already. So uh, this one of the it it does either it times stuff, but it also compares times. So like in um, this, this we're showing the the website here, but um, and it I can't I can't tell what they're timing. So let's just pull over in the uh, documentation. It does have a bunch of examples. So if you ran Fastero with uh, with two code snippets. And in this example that we're showing is just a, either just showing either a string or an F string timing those. So that's pretty neat. Uh, and those, so those two code snippets, if you run those, it'll run both of those a whole bunch of times and do some statistics. Like in this example, it's running it 20,000 and 50,000 times, but no 20 million and 50 million. Wow. Um, and then, uh, it shows you a little progress bar and, um, and then who wins, um, but if you don't, if you're not comparing two things, it'll just show one with the same graphics. But you can do more than two. I I did, I did like three or four just trying this out to time different things and compare them. Um, and this often that's why I'm timing something. I'm comparing two things, and I want to see which one's faster. So this is a really cool feature. Um, you can either pass in code snippets, or you can give it two Python file names, uh, and it'll run both both those things. One of the, it's got a whole bunch of really cool features actually. And one of the things I like is uh, you can, if you've got some a code snippet that you are, um, it needs some setup, but that the setup part isn't the part you're timing. You can give it some setup code to do before it does the time part. So that's pretty neat. Anyway, uh, just a really nice looking command line interface timing tool. Yeah, that's very cool. So you can sort of isolate the things that you really want to time. 
about. Yeah, I haven't tried the setup part, but it, it's cool that it has it in there. There's um, there's yeah, a very nice. documentation is pretty thorough actually as well. Um, quite a bit of cost customization available. That's cool. Yeah, I agree that is that is nice that setup stuff because so often if I want to profile like some web app or something, it's the thing I want to profile is dwarfed by just loading up the framework and scanning all the files. And you're like, all right, now I got to hunt down for that little fragment that actually represents what I'm really after. So be cool. Yeah, maybe I'll try one yeah. of those sometimes. So. Yeah, and you can pass in strings of Python or you can pass in files. Yeah. And when I saw the strings bit, I'm like, all right, there's a good use case for semicolons in Python. <laughs> well, you right? can, you can use them. Thing, do it. Or... <laughs> yeah. So Exactly. It makes you feel better. So. Awesome. Well, that's a good one. Anna, on to you. What's your first uh, one here? Yeah, so um, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about, well, data, my, my line of business. <laughs> uh, and I was just thinking that uh, something that could be really interesting is, um, uh, especially for that part of, of, of our audience that works with um, you know, like kind of data science projects. Uh, well, in general, you're collecting data. Uh, you... Definitely, in, in most cases, you get some kind of noisy data that you need to um, clean up and, and filter out in, in some way. And particularly, so um, I imagine we have a pretty large international audience as well. Um, and also, on the other hand, if you're working with data from um, the social media, which is like very popular right now, uh, one of the questions that you have to solve there is... Um, identify the, the human language of the data that, that you're working with and, and then you want to filter out the pieces of data that are maybe, for example, are not in English if you're going through um, going through social media posts or something. All right. You get that um, little so, translate this to your language little button at the end if for some reason the popular post is in Spanish or something, right? Exactly. Yeah. And some of the uh, platforms and uh, their APIs rather um do you provide this kind of uh, filtering on uh, their backhand? Um, I know Twitter does that, um, but also, as I know, <laughs> uh, sometimes it's not as reliable, really. I guess maybe, it's, uh, again, like I could imagine that maybe it's not really sort of the ultimate goal. The fact that maybe not putting as much love and care into this question. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's something that I had to, to deal um, a few times um, also. And a couple of libraries that have uh, worked with are Lang ID um, and Lang Detect. There are a few more out there, and, and they're, um, these, these ones have been out there for a while, actually. And Lang ID has been, um, hasn't been actually um, sort of worked on actively for a few years now, but it's still kind of, um, you know, one of those like benchmark um, libraries for this kind of questions. Um, and uh, both of those are uh, super neat, actually. So um, LangID is really popular, and the, one of the things that I really liked about it is that it actually covers a lot of languages. Um, so um, I've actually had different pieces of information depending on the, like, the documentation that I was using on a PyPy or at the GitHub page. Um, so at some point, I saw it was covering 97, and I think there are GitHub page thing 97. Languages, 97 yeah. is a lot of languages. I couldn't so, name yeah. 97 languages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a linguist. I would have trouble naming, you know, 97 languages off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, I definitely don't speak 97 languages. Um, and uh, the, some of the nice things about it is that you can use it as sort of like a standalone, you know, module, uh, like a command line tool, for instance. 
Uh, but you can also use it as um, uh, launched as a web service. Um, so that, that's really neat about it. Um, and some more like nitty gritty things that were really helpful when I was trying it out for some of my projects uh, was that it, um, when you try to identify the, the human language um, using one ID, um, it actually outputs um, the weight and the calculation done, is, which is very typical in like a lock space. So we have like this funky numbers in the end, so, you know, truly speaking. Uh, but the good thing is that you actually can convert them to like more confidence scores that, uh, especially a data scientists are used to. <laughs> um, and that actually comes in super handy um, because sometimes you, when you're trying to filter out the data um, and you know that this kind of tools are like obviously not, you know, 100% reliable, you can also use this confidence scores to maybe uh, use it as again, it's like, okay, I'm taking this answer and I'm relying on that. Or, okay, maybe I'll just like drop this, um, this piece of data altogether because it looks like the, the language identifier is not super actually um, sure like what kind of language this is, um, you know, if you're targeting a specific language. Um, and yeah, another, this, is, this is wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, get, you basically might say we're 80% sure it's English, but it might also be Spanish or, or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like English can be easily confused with uh, maybe German or sometimes sure. French, just because so much of the vocabulary that's circling around with those, those two languages. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so the the identifier is not going to be like the hundred percent sure that um, you know this is language up. And the funny thing is that um, I'm not so sure about Lang ID. Um, yeah, Lang ID is also statistical actually. No remembering um, and the language text as well. Um, and sort of the, the, the flip side of that is that um, it actually works very well. The, the, the bigger piece of data that you're fitting into it, the more um, confidence going to be. Like, right, that, that's how statistics work. <laughs> yeah. And that's how machine learning works, uh, sort of generally speaking. Um, and if you're working specifically with this kind of short tweet, uh, like social media posts, if it's like a really short phrase, sentence, interspersed with like emojis and stuff, uh, it's probably not going to be super confident. So the bigger piece of data, the, the more confident, um, the, the, the better the performance of the language identifier will be. So something to keep in mind when you're working with kind of data and you're yeah. trying to filter it by language frame. Yeah, that makes sense. If you have one word or something, it's, it's yeah, very hard go, to go right? off. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. exactly. Let's so this being one file, sorry, Brad, this being one file is insane. Like it acts as a web server and does all sorts of stuff. Crazy. This is crazy. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's, uh, I, I really like, something that I really like about it, it's a uh, pretty lightweight, sort of, uh, well, isolated, low dependency kind of package, uh, which is fascinating. Based on a um, kind of not a super sophisticated, naive faith algorithm, uh, if I'm remembering it actually correctly. And so, yeah, um, that, that's, um, really really fun and it's, it's really nice that it works so nicely um and the other one that i wanted to sort of kind of juxtapose to it <laughs> was lang detect uh, which is in my second tabs uh, there um which um i happen to find a little bit more uh, robust when i got to work with like the language human language data in my project um and the it, it's also um really neat and easy to use um and 
the, the great thing about the, the basic usage is, is very straightforward. It's like one of those packages you discover, like you know immediately what's doing, how it's doing it, and you know, like you really can understand in five minutes, is it going to be something that, you know, is going to suit well in my, in my project for my project. Sure. Um, so the, the, the main methods are detect and um, detect slang. So you can either um, just call it on a piece of data and uh, try and get the most probable uh, language uh, that this package thinks it is. Um, or um, you can have uh, return the list of possible languages that's going actually to report them, to order them. Um, so you could be like maybe English, and then there's um, a tiny fraction of probability that it's going to be the German or something like that, and then you can uh, decide for yourself. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, overall, from my experience, language detect works and identified languages a little bit better than language ID, but that sort of looks, you know, empirical um, uh, thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's um, great. For, for it seems end. super useful for anyone that needs to parse text and can't be sure it's, it's all in one language. Yeah, so if anyone out there like working on some kind of data science project uh, working with human language data, I would highly recommend. And probably one of the things why LangScient is um, a little bit more uh, confident and robust, uh, I know that it covers uh, fewer languages. So I think it's 55 languages total um, compared to, I was it, 97 uh, for LangID with it. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. They're great. Nice. Well, Michael, let me tell you about our sponsor for this episode. Before we move on, it's a podcast. Amazing. Uh, so this episode of Python Bytes is sponsored by the Compiler Podcast from Red Hat. So everyone out there, just like you, Brian, and I, we're both fans of podcasts, listen to podcasts all the time and stuff. That's why we started some. We like them. And so I'm happy to share a new one from a highly respected open source company, Compiler, an original podcast from Red Hat. With more and more of us working from home or being more disconnected, it's important to keep our human connection with technology. Compiler unravels industry topics, trends, and things you've always wanted to know about tech through interviews with the people who know best. So on Compiler, you'll hear a chorus of perspectives from a diverse communities behind the code. These conversations include questions like, what is technical debt? What are tech hiring managers actually looking for? Hint, see item one to some degree. And do you know how to code uh, to get started with open? <laughs> how do you know how to code to get started with open source? All right. Uh, was, I was a guest on Red Hat's previous podcast called Command Line Heroes, and that was a super produced and polished podcast. It was a really cool experience. And so Compiler follows along in that excellent tradition and that polished style. So I checked out episode 12, how you, we should handle failure, which I found really interesting. I really valued their conversation about making space for developers to fail so they can learn without fear of making mistakes, you know, like taking down the production website and so on, right? People grow through experimentation, but they also fail if they try new things. So you got to make sure that they they get a chance to, to grow. So learn about the compiler podcast at pythonbytes.fm slash compiler. The link is at uh, your podcast player show notes right at the top. You listen to it on all the places that you would think. So thanks to Compiler Podcast for keeping this podcast going strong. And Brian, also just real quickly want to point out, I know people can just go to their podcast app, whatever that's Pocket Cast or Overcast or whatever, and type in Compiler and search. But please visit pythonbytes.fm slash compiler. And there's a place to subscribe with all of your various podcast nice. destinations. That way they know it came from us rather than just out of the ether. 
So um, if you're going to subscribe or check them out, please do through, through that link just so people know. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how about I t- how about we talk about watching some things like files? Yeah. We were listening. So now we're watching. We were listening. Now we're going to watch. But watch them for changes, not watch what they are. So this one comes to us from Samuel Colvin of Hydantic fame. So, you know, it's a, a pretty cool a pretty cool experience behind developing this API. And the idea is it's a simple, modern, and high-performance way to watch files for changes. So there's a lot of reasons you might want to do that. You might want to say, if somebody drops a file into this directory, I'm going to kick off a job to like load it up and process it in some kind of batch processing. Or I want to have my web framework automatically restart if this any of the files in here get changed, right? Any of the Python files or whatever. So you could use it for things like that. But the modern part's pretty interesting. It, it hooks into the underlying file system, the underlying OS notification systems, and is done through that's done through the notify Rust library. So basically it's a low latency, high performance, native, non-polling way of watching the files. It just goes to the operating system and says, Hey, I in this directory tree, if anything changes, call the callback. Nice. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. So there's real simple uses here. Like I can say from watch files import watch and then just four changes in watch some path, then you can process those changes. So here's an example of an app that just starts and its job is to, as things change here, take them up. That might be an example of what I said about kicking off something over to like load it and parse it and decide what to do and then maybe pass it to celery for background work, right? On the other hand, you might want to do other things while you're watching for changes as well in your app, in which case there's also an A watch, an asynchronous watch. So if you're doing other work and it's all async IO based, here you can just say, kick off the watching bit and await for the changes to happen and then do other async processing like fast API or web or database calls, you know, web with HTTPX or database calls with Beanie or, or whatever, other async IO things, and it sort of lets you run them in parallel, which is cool, right? Yeah. And then if you mm-hmm. want to go even further, you can kick off a separate process and say, start a process that will watch for changes here and then call back this function if those things change. So that's pretty cool too. Um, so there's there's all these different ways in which you can use it. But yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. It's based on this Rust library and it, it seems pretty powerful. There's also a CLI which I did want to point out one other thing over here. Like this, I thought this might impress you, Brian. Definitely. I can do a command line watch files command that will say, watch this directory. And if anything changes, rerun the failing tests. That's very cool. That's cool, right? So you just do watch files and you run the string pytest dash dash LF, which is pytest rerun the failing tests. If anything changes, I think that's neat. Yeah, the um the the command line stuff is actually cool. I I'd, I'd check it out just for the command line usage, but the um mm-hmm. the ability to use it programmatically too with an API that's impressive, and I'm I'm very happy they included that. Yeah, absolutely. This is if you're going to use it through the CLI, this is the perfect pip x install type thing, right? Yeah. Pip x install watch files, and then it's not really tied to any of your projects. It's just always there. Anna, what do you think? Um, yeah, but that that looks super neat. Uh, just made me immediately think about um, uh, file triggers that are one of the things that are mostly used, or at least widely used in, in, in Austrian uh, cloud storage as well. And yeah. It's like, yep. <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> exactly. like all the possible ways that it can be used. So, yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, I wonder they, if they, in their documentation, they actually provide any popular use cases or anything. They, they might not do that, but I'm 
curious if they actually do. Uh, yeah, I didn't see any any in particular. Just a couple of examples on how you might use it and all. But yeah, yeah. There's an older project called Watch God. I don't know anything about that one, but I'm glad I didn't learn about it because now there's a new one called Watch Files. But if you're using the old one, this is the successor to that as well. It's a funny <laughs> name, but I could see why some people might not want to use it. So, yeah, well, I can see item yeah. one, right? Pick a name that people are yep. willing to talk about. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk about a new tool as well. Coverage. Not co So we, hopefully all of us are familiar with coverage.py. So uh, it's uh, maintained by Ned Batchelder, a really cool tool. But there's a new guy on the scene and the new person on the scene is Slipcover. So Slipcover, and actually I heard about Slipcover through the uh, coverage.py Twitter account, which was interesting. Um, and uh, so not surprising though, Ned's a pretty open-minded guy. Um, but uh, so Slipcover is is coverage, but it's it's pretty new. So some of these uh, commits that's just within the last week or so that things this came in. So there's a, uh, it's still at like, I think the version is 0.1.1 or something like that. Um, we even just got a new one out this morning. So why would you want to use something different? Well, the, the, the big selling point of this is it's really fast. It uses a different, a different process for, um, for getting the coverage information. And it supposedly is only a 3% overhead, which, um, depending on your code coverage.py can be, uh, can sometimes slow down your code, uh, significantly. Um, and if you've got a, a really long running test suite, making it even 20% faster, but sometimes coverage can make it like twice as slow. Um, so if, if you've got a five minute test suite that makes it 10 minutes and that's a little painful. So, uh, this might be worth checking out. It's uh, quite a bit faster. I tried it against flask, uh, as an example and the, the flask numbers. Um, so flask has got a pretty tight test suite anyway. But uh, so just straight PyTest on my machine, it was like 2.7 seconds um, with coverage was uh, about four, 4.3 seconds. Um, and then with slip cover, it was just a little slower than just PyTest. So PyTest 2.7 with slip cover is 2.88. So just a little tiny bit more and you get coverage information. That's pretty That's cool. Um, yeah. it, it is in the early stages, though. There's some there's some kinks to work out still. So uh, I would try it out and watch this space. Um, I think they're doing some really cool things. Definitely worth watching. But uh, like, for instance, I ran into issues on projects that use PyTest plugins. I don't know why, but the plugins don't get loaded. So the uh, like, for instance, um, I tried to run this this Flask example, but with Xdist uh, so that I could run all the tests in parallel to see if it sped up parallel runs it also it didn't recognize the parallelism. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but I am commu in communication with uh, Juan, uh, one of the, the maintainers of this or um, uh, let him know what, what I found out. I'm not just griping uh, and not trying to make it better. I'd love to have this be uh, a really cool tool. So it looks That's neat. I, yeah. Go ahead, Dana. Yeah. And so the, the near your overhead is mostly due to the companies uh, managed to, to provide that. Uh, we talk about the documentation. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. With such low overhead, I'm tempted to think of a more diabolical use of it. Like I've got, I'm handed some crummy old app that doesn't really have tests. And I got to figure out, well, what part of this is dead? Because I don't know if you've ever picked up some old app 
that's evolved and evolved. And there's just stuff people don't take out because they're afraid to. Yeah. Just run this in production for a while. Once, oh, yeah. And just go, okay, these things don't look like they're doing it. There might be some case I need to track down, but this gray area over here that's not touched, let me look for things to delete over here. That'd be kind of fun. That's my favorite use of coverage is looking for dead code. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, before we move off this, Brian, of our ask, does it have a PyTest plugin? I know you said it doesn't work to run plugins, but this is the reverse question. Um, I don't, I don't think so. So you're running, you're running uh, slipcover and PyTest at the same time. I don't think you really need a PyTest plugin for it. Um, it, mm. it, uh, I would, it, it does run work with PyTest, so like you can run uh, PyTest uh, operations on with it. But nice, just not the bells and whistles yet. Right, uh, but I'm sure they'll get there. Yeah, I would love to sort of circle back to the the, the data. Great, <laughs> sound like a broken record, but that's my favorite topic. No, it's great um, to have actually, you on to talk about it because Brian and I <laughs> don't live in the the data science world, right? Yeah, so it's, so it's great, really cool. Yeah. Uh, well, you're you're welcome in our in our world. <laughs> There's a lot of fun stuff happening here, and um, well, actually, if you think about it from the, the actual very beginning, right? The, even before trying to. Uh, wrangle the data and trying to infer any interesting information of the data, you have to get it somehow. <laughs> and um, sometimes if you're like particularly working on some uh, sort of uh, side projects on your own um, and you, you want to maybe try out a new tool or maybe new, if, you, if you're doing like a um, machine learning project on modeling approach, um, you usually need um, some very specific data to, to work on um, and how do you get the data? Well, you have to actually go and maybe find some examples of the data on your own. And so something I wanted to talk about today was uh, actually web crawling and web scraping and a couple of um, tools for that. Um, so one that is um, quite popular and it's actually like um, an industrial grade kind of tool is, um, uh, well, actually either Scrapey or Scrape I have heard both uh, variants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it's a pretty great tool. Um, um, so one of the great things like from the get-go about it is that uh, it actually has a built-in shell. Um, so you can just uh, go ahead and sort of try out things in the CLI, um, get the response from a URL, for instance, and then try to uh, poke around it and then test out its behavior, which is really nice, and then see how it the kind of things you might want from there. Um, and if you're actually uh, sort of go ahead and, and, and use it uh, for your module to, to acquire, to get some data rather, um, it provides all sorts of uh, really nice functionality. To begin with, um, for instance, the choice between using other data selectors for the, the, the content of the web pages or XPath, which is um, obviously a little bit more flexible yeah, it's, it's more fragile though, because if they make any change to the page, that also, gets... yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but still, yeah. Well, it's a part of the game. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, and then uh, some other really nice things about it is that actually uh, they do a lot of like heavy lifting for you in, in terms of instance templating. So you can there's um, uh, built-in methods for a start, start project, and you can. Um, you know, run that and right away you have the, the whole structure and like all sorts of the, the, the boilerplate um, kind of code. And you just fill in the uh, certain pieces, for instance, for icon processing, which is in the pipeline module, I think some of the settings, 
etc. And uh, there you go. You know, I have like a, a huge amount of work already sort of um, preset for you, pre pre done kind of for you. Um, and then uh, some other nice things about it is that uh, I also provide you with like um, a numerous choices actually for um, exporting the data and for storing the data as well in, in a few places and the format that you would love to to use for it. Um, sort of like well, all the typical standard things like PSV, JSON, etc. Sure. Uh, some more, um, some some less frequent options really. Yeah, another and, thing that's pretty interesting about this whole project is that there's a web scraping as a service company yeah. behind it, right? It used to be called Scraping Hub. Now it's Zyte, Z-Y-T-E. Hmm. And you, yep. can basically, you can basically go in there and just, you know, sign up and hand it one of these these um, spiders and it'll just run it on the different servers, try to avoid getting blocked, all that crazy stuff. Exactly, yeah. Um, so um, therefore, it's so elaborate. <laughs> And they really put a lot of, uh, just like I was talking before, a lot of uh, loving cares, like all of the sorts of uh, functionality, like covering all those corners of like what you might want from uh, like a web crawling um, tool. Uh, and some other examples that uh, I found particularly useful, for instance, is uh, the link extractor class is like really getting to like mean reading you know, parts of the, of the tool where you can um, extract further links from the page, uh, but only those ones that, you know, to adhere to a particular pattern, for instance. Um, and the, the list that you get is already decubed. Um, so once again, it's like alleviate so much of, you know, the, the dirty work on, on your part. Uh, so that's really great. And they do provide um, actually ways to interact with the pages as well. There's a former class that you can use as it does um, provide some functionality where you can interact with the page, but um, I haven't used it as much myself, so um, I can barely show how fascinating it is. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it, it's probably well done as well. Um, and another uh, library that I wanted to touch on briefly today as well was um, uh, Roblox. That's actually something new for myself. That's something I'm in, you know, in the process of exploring, so I haven't um had a chance to like work a whole lot with it yet um but it's been really really interesting and i would i would love i would be happy if you know i got to hear from somebody else to write it out or something um because it um well in the, in the first place it's um it's still on top of um HTTPX and, and beautiful soup beautiful soup four rather <laughs> they're super popular in, in the industry in, in sort of the data processing line of work and particular web web crawling um and web scraping um, and, um, but it adds some, you know, really useful functionalities and it looks like it, uh, allows even more of this interaction with, the uh, pages in a like very neat and clean way. Um, I can probably find examples yeah, right away yeah. here yeah, yeah. in the documentation. It looks so, so, you know, nice and clean and, and straightforward, um, looks lovely. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this package on, uh, hoping to have an opportunity to test it out um, soon. Yeah, Roblox looks very interesting. It looks very um, Selenium-like, where you yeah. can actually control the page yeah. as well, like fill in this, fill in the comments with this, fill in the first name with that, and then submit. The other thing that's cool about it is it has uh, async support for doing all this. Exactly, things, so yeah. You can yep. scale yep. it. Well, it yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks. Nice. Um, well, where are we at now? We have... Uh, 
Extras. Extras. Extra, extra, extra. Hear all about it. I only got one. How many you got? I got zero. Zero. All right. And anything else you want to give a quick shout out to while we're here? No. No. Okay. Cool. Well, I wanted to tell you all about um, my terminal adventures, I suppose we'll call them. So I've been using Oh My Z Shell, which is amazing. I love Oh My Z Shell. But I also started playing with Oh My Posh and Please and some of these other things. And I thought, oh, well, how am I going to decide by between, say, Oh My Posh and Oh My Z Shell? Well, it turns out, Brian, you don't have to decide. You get both. So here's a little uh, animated uh, video I'll, I'll throw up for people who are watching. And I'll put it in the links as well. So here's, you can see this cool um, prompt, which is all driven by Oh My Posh. But you can see uh, like autocomplete into Git, local Git branches through Oh My Z Shell for either branch or checkout. Wow. And then on top of that, we can do like ELS, which is amazing. You can do, oh, and McFly. We talked about McFly before, which gives you autocomplete into your history and sort of an Emacs style editor type of uh, AI complete. And then PLS for a LS replacement that is developer friendly with like little icons for the file types. And it uses git ignore to hide stuff that you don't want to see. And it's like Python friendly, like understands V and Vs and de-emphasizes them and all that kind of stuff. So. Anyway, uh, people have been trying to decide between these things. It turns out they all go well together. You don't have to decide. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 I really like with VSH and that, that looks even, yeah. Yeah. And all the stuff that works, you don't have to give up any of it. The only thing that isn't there is the, the prompt. And the prompt is not all that great, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I know you can customize it, but I think it's better in all my posh, which is pretty amazing. So people who are listening, they can check out the little video. I'll link to somehow find a way to do that. <laughs> Uh, in the show notes, so you all can check it out. Okay, nice. that's my extra. Yeah, yeah. How about a joke? And I guess how about a joke? So uh, we're all starting to go back out to dinner, restaurants. COVID's over, I hear. Not necessarily, but uh, here's one from a slightly different perspective. It says hello, I'm your server today, Brian. Can you just describe <laughs> for people listening what's in this picture? There's two ro- two robots at a, at a, at a restaurant sitting down. And there's a cert, like a server rack next to him. Nice. <laughs> yeah, okay. And it, the subtitle is, when you go out for a bite, B-Y-T-E says, <laughs> the, the server is by the table where the robots are drinking. It says, my name is DHX005972, and I will be your server this evening. <laughs> I love funny. this one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. That's, that's what I got for us for our joke today. Nice. Well, thanks, Anna, for uh, yeah. joining us today. Thank you. And thanks, thank you Mark. for having yeah. me. Yeah, it was great. Thank you, Brian, as always, and everyone out there listening. Thanks so much. Yeah. Have a good one, everyone.